Hello, I'm Tatiana Antonelli and welcome to Forward Talks by Groombook, a podcast about moving towards sustainability in our region and beyond. On today's episode, we're digging into the National Pavilion of the UAE for the Biennale Architettura 2021 Wetland, which is curated by Wahel Alawar and Kenichi Teramoto. The prototype is created from recycled industrial waste brine, hand cast into organic shapes to recall the UAE's traditional coral-built houses and spans 7 meter by 5 meter, with a height of 2.7 meters. The exhibit was just awarded the Golden Lion Award for Best National Participation at the Venice Architecture Biennale. To find out more about how this came to be, we're joined on the episode by Leila Brinbeck, who has served as the National Pavilion's Coordinating Director since 2014, and Wahel Alawar, founding partner at YY Design, and one of the curators of the current edition of the Pavilion. Congratulations on being appointed the curators of the UAE National Pavilion at the current architecture exhibition of the Venice Biennale. How does it feel and how is the project progressing? It feels good. I'm also proud that uh, because this year is the 10th participation of the UAE in the uh, Venice, uh, Arch- uh, Venice Biennale, not only architecture, but at the Venice Biennale. And at the same time, it's the UAE Jubilee 50th anniversary. So it, it, it is a special moment in time in the UAE. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to be representing uh, UAE architecture scene in, in this moment in time. So it's very interesting that uh, we're looking at the UAE as, you know, a key figure in, in architecture at the moment. Uh, we all know that uh, Dubai and the whole country has been growing, developing tremendously. And um, it's really interesting also to look at the sustainability aspect of this growth. And uh, the country now is really putting a lot of effort to become more sustainable, look into new uh, solutions, technologies, nature-based specifically. So here, I think your project is also very, very important because it looks at a nature-based solution, but also trying to solve a big challenge that is, um, I would say, very specific to the region, to the countries around the Gulf, that where we desalinize uh, a lot, but at the same time, we have specific environmental uh, conditions where we find a lot of salt around the country. So the issue of brine is, is definitely a big challenge. It has been a compelling uh, issue for some time. And even the United Nations announced uh, a competition to inspire designers to come up with ways to repurpose this brine or utilize it constructively. So how did you first become interested in this issue and come to know about the Sapka Flats? When I moved to the UAE, one of the hobbies to do in the UAE was diving. So I started diving. And then during my diving uh, uh, trips, I uh, started looking at the corals. And uh, over the years, two, three years later, I started seeing the corals turning white and many of the corals dying. And then... uh, I was informed that this is a result of, of bleaching, which is resulting from the excessive brine in, in the sea. And then there, you know, brine for the first time entered into my uh, world. Then, you know, when the opportunity uh, came to submit a proposal for the uh, Biennale, uh, for the National Pavilion of the UAE, uh, as an architect practicing in the UAE, 
you always wonder, you know, what is a sustainable material to use in, in this context, the UAE itself. Uh, other countries have their vernacular sources of material to produce architecture, you know, such as in Lebanon, you have stone, in Japan, you have wood. We can later talk a, a lot more about uh, uh, cement and, and the problems of cement, but, uh, you know, it's the second most consumed material on the planet. We consume 30 trillion tons of cement uh, uh, today yearly. And by 2060, it is projected we will consume 60 trillion tons of cement. So the numbers are, are just insane. They don't add up. Cement itself contributes to 8% of global CO2 emission. The vernacular architecture of the UAE, you could say, you know, they built traditional houses from corals that they took from the, you know, from the sea. But again, that was a very small population. You could do that without really harming the sea because then they could reproduce. But today, when the population of the UAE is at 10 million, that is no longer a, a viable option. And then using Arish to build with, I think that is also a very nostalgic way of thinking because you know we live in a modern world and we need the, the comforts of today, the modern world. And when we started trying to understand, okay, what is the geography, what is the geology of the UAE that could offer that vernacular, uh, you know, we we stumbled upon the the sabhas uh, of the of the UAE, um, and the sabhas were fascinating landscapes, natural phenomena that the crystal crust on the top was really a very hard, uh, cementitious material that uh, struck us uh, from the very beginning. It you know it it really struck us. And uh, with little research, uh, soon after, we discovered that actually sabhas were uh, used as vernacular architecture in many similar environments. And one of which is, uh, for example, uh, Siwa, which is uh, in Egypt on the border of Libya, as well as, for example, Shat al-Jirid in, in Tunisia. So we started investigating at, and looking at sabhas in, in more detail, uh, trying to understand like how, what, what is causing this cementitious effect within a sabha? Uh, and then we uh, quickly learned that the binding agent within the sabha is magnesium oxide, uh, which is MGO. And that is what binds the, the salts together or creates this, uh, this glue. Um, but of course, we, we cannot promote the extraction of sabhas. Sabhas are fascinating environments. Uh, they uh, absorb CO2. Actually, they, I believe they are the lungs of the UAE. We don't have the rainforests, but uh, actually one square meter of sabha can absorb more CO2 than one square meter of rainforest. So we, we have these magnificent natural environments that can, you know, that offer us this, that purify our environment. So we cannot go and promote their extraction in order to, to build or produce architecture. But at least we learned what the binding agent is from there uh, and then try to, to work with, uh, with partners. And one of our biggest partner is Amber Lab at NYU Abu Dhabi, which is the Advanced Material Building Research Laboratory, uh, trying to find a... a a cement uh, alternative that is inspired from uh, uh, sabhas. It's actually fascinating to hear the story and, and how it all came 
together. And, and this is, I think, what is, is really interesting. And you mentioned a couple of things that I think are fundamental for us to think about the future is how much are we going to grow? And uh, I think at the same time, when we look at the UAE and we say, yeah, maybe we're going to reach, you know, 20 million, which is one of the targets that the UAE has for the next 20 years. Uh, when we think about how are we going to feed this population or how are we going to provide water to this population? And uh, we've been desalinating already a lot. The salinity has gone up tremendously. And there is a scenario where we might not be able to desalinize anymore the water in the Gulf. So the fact that at the same time in architecture, we're looking at materials that are uh, needed in bigger quantities to develop um, these new cities, it could be interesting to see you know, an analogy or a parallelism between the usage of this extra salt or all this brine and this is how now my, that leads to my next question. How does product compare to other concretes um, in terms of strength and longevity, price and sustainability? I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is an early stage, but is this something that you can see already yourself with your firm utilizing on a large scale, not, not anymore as, as a, an experiment? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think we can definitely see this as a viable solution. I mean, we went to Venice with a concrete proposal on the table, uh, you know, concrete in, in two, in two, two here uh, uh, meanings. Let's start with uh, understanding the problem of concrete and what we are proposing and how it is different from uh, concrete or cement, you know. Concrete, the problem of concrete is actually the binder, which is CAO which is lime. And the problem starts with the conversion of limestone to lime. And there, there's a chemical rea reaction in which there is a release of CO2. And the problem of uh, uh, the CO2 emission from converting uh, limestone to lime is not only the release of CO2, is how much CO2 is released. And the problem is it is a one-to-one -one ratio, meaning that to produce one ton of uh, cement, you are releasing one ton of uh, CO2. And that's an insane quantity. I mean, no other material is this, uh, uh, to put it in layman terms, is this dumb, <laughs> in, 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 you know, to say it bluntly. And one ton of CO2 needs one tree for 40 years to absorb that amount. And to build a building, I mean, uh, to build a column, just a simple column of, uh, say, 40 by 80 by three meters high, that's like one ton of cement. So building a, a building is the immense amount of cement being used and then hence an immense amount of CO2 being released. So in our case, what we did is replace the CAO with MGO. And this is where we learned from Sabhas that MGO could be an alternative uh, binder. Where are we getting the MGO? We are actually extracting it from the reject brine of desalination water. How does it perform? I mean, it has very different properties, uh, properties from what we call ordinary uh, Portland cement. Uh, uh, and one of the, the difference, key difference is that MGO cement, in order to gain its structural strength, it needs to absorb CO2. So this is a catch-22 scenario where, where it's, this is a positive thing where you say this material in order to become 
as strong as cement will need to absorb CO2, then you are getting a, a plus plus kind of situation. But the problem with that is that in current state, in order to carbonate the material, we can only put it in carbon chambers, meaning that we can only produce it as precast element and not as a cast in situ system. Uh, but still, that doesn't mean that we cannot build using precast elements. I mean, there are buildings and towers built today from a precast concrete elements rather than a cast in situ system. It's just a, a different way of building that we need to adapt and look into. Thank you, Well, You took me back to my studies in uh, construction sciences. <laughs> oh, you, you studied construction sciences. That's great. I, I studied architecture, but I have to say I was not really good at, at construction science. So I, I, I went more for the urban uh, planning uh, part nice. of architecture. Nice. <laughs> but it's fascinating, honestly. And um, I'm, next time we meet, hopefully I'll ask you lots of other questions. Sure, yes. What are your hopes for the future of this product? <laughs> Good question. <I> mean, <laughs> it's not a simple one. <laughs> what, it's not about only this product. I think it's more about what are my hopes, you know, about architecture material in general going forward. I think, you know, architects have to assume a responsibility over the materials they use and their impact on climate. We can no longer say, this is not my problem, you know? And I think that was the attitude of the 20th century architect. Today, we have to, this is definitely our problem. We are custodians of uh, the planet and we are, we are uh, the, the people that build uh, for our future generations and our current generations. So, we have to assume responsibility over the materials we use, and we have to work with so many other uh, disciplines, be it you know, the science, scientists, like we are working with the American University of Sharjah, also biochemistry lab, as well as the, the uh, NYU Abu Dhabi Advanced Material Research Lab, in order to you know, find viable alternative uh, solutions. I think one of the things also that, you know, in listening to what talk about you know, the research and how they, I mean, everything that he said, but I think it's also a call on architects uh, to look at their local resources, like reinvestigate and kind of find their own solution. So even though what Wat and Teremoto have been ex exploring uh, with the desalination and the brine, it, it's, it's a solution to our problem here. It might not necessarily be the solution you know, worldwide, let's say we're not necessarily proposing that, you know, we should be making it here and shipping it around the world because that kind of defeats the whole purpose of sustainability. But, you know, we should, we, should, we should be looking also internally for some of those solutions as well. So, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting way of how they've decided to approach that question. For sure. I think what is really important is to understand that what we do locally can have a global impact. And when we look at local solutions, we can definitely make a difference. And as you say, we cannot apply the same solution everywhere. And, 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 and it's very important. I remember when I started actually uh, studying architecture, one of the professors said that uh, the humanistic uh, interpretation of architecture was to make sure people would live happily, that we were supposed to build buildings and cities where people would thrive 
and 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 be healthy and happy. And somehow, I think this has gone lost uh, in the way we are we're developing cities, or we were developing cities, due to also the the economy and how the economy was was uh, was developing. Now we're looking at circular economies. We're looking in a totally different way to to build our cities and the way we want to live. Um, and this, I think, it's uh, it's it's a good way also to look at the theme of this year Biennale, where uh, the title is "How will we live together?" And so it's quite ironic somehow uh, that for the past year or so we've been living quite apart due to lockdowns and social distancing. And if we look at how we now live in general, we're growing more and more apart, less communal areas, more apartment block living. Uh, yeah, somehow we don't even know our neighbors. And ironically, uh, the pandemic has more than ever revealed to us that we thrive on social interactions and need communities for many different reasons. And also I think the way we look at the how we're gonna build the, the future cities is, is very important. Um, not only the, 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 the urban development and the design, but also the materials. Because if we look at you know, architecture and building, uh, the building sector and industry, so many times materials also were completely wrong and, and damaging um, our health. So this leads to my next question. Um, how do you think we will leave together um, mainly in the in the UAE and the region because I think this is one of the aspects we're all really interested in but also globally when the Biennale theme came out obviously there was there was no pandemic but you're right it's uh, Tatiana as soon as the the pandemic hit that question became just took on a slightly different nuance and I think one of the interesting things that we could see especially here in the UAE is how you know, despite we were all very isolated, but we, you know, through arts, culture, um, these these kind of initiatives still were able to bring us together at the same time, even though we were quite isolated. So one, it's, you know, these kind of endeavors like the Biennale or, um, you know, these more creative ways of trying to find solutions to these larger global problems are important. Um, and I think the question of how will we live together, you know, is a question that's going to take a little bit of time to answer. Um, and we'll leave it, you know, there are many different ways that you can answer it. And for this Biennale, where we're looking at it through our built environment, as you said, you know, there are a lot of concrete towers everywhere being built, and maybe that's not the solution going forward, or the materials that we're using to build are maybe need to be reevaluated and reevaluated and uh, and you know at the national pavilion we try to take elements of those questions and encourage our curators to to try and answer them when we pre proposed and presented this research project also the pandemic had not been there um, but yet you know in my presentation i i remember very well saying that uh, as humans, we have never been so disconnected from Earth or from our planet. And then when the pandemic hit, it just, you know, really highlighted all of these issues that were already there, but I believe a lot were trying to disregard or undermine and not place any value towards them. One of the key things that 
you know, and being forced to slow down and reevaluate, as Wael said, you know, your priorities, your values over the last year and a half is that you can't do it alone, you know, you and you you need to collectively come together to find solutions. And I think what they've done in this pavilion for the research, it's not just Wael and Teremoto sitting, you know, in their office figuring out this solution. They had a very collaborative methodology of, uh, of, of research and investigation, you know, where they brought in different universities, they brought in different experts, they, they discussed. And, you know, through that, they came up with a particular solution that they then presented at the Biennale. And the Biennale itself is supposed to be about this international dialogue where you come together and you discuss these things. You discuss these issues now. Normally, in a in a regular year, you don't actually really have time to sit and discuss. But I think um, I don't know if you'd call it a silver lining, but being forced to slow down meant that a lot of the curators of the different national pavilions were actually able to come together over Zoom or different methods to to actually share their their own in, uh, personal research ideas or stories. And they together formed a curators collective, which now is, you know, taking that idea of what the Biennale is supposed to be about bringing us together in dialogue to answer these larger global questions, but they're really actually sitting together for the first time and actually really talking about it. And, you know, the answer to your question, Tatiana, how will we live together? Well, individually, we can't answer that, but I think if we reach out a little bit more and realize the power of collaboration, we will find uh, solutions and ways forward. So to both of you, uh, from your different, you know, uh, areas of ex expertise and um, different stakeholders, can you see a change in the public, uh, not only in the aware uh, people or the aware institutions, but in the general public, do you see a change? I think change happens slower than we would like it to, um, but it does happen. And I think every year, I mean, one of the things that we try to do to ensure that there's some kind of dialogue or that the research is still out there is that we, we produce a publication to accompany every exhibition so that the questions or the investigations that are happening are in a format that can still be accessible way beyond the fact uh, of the, the, physical, the physical exhibition itself. Um, and the only way that you can is, is awareness, you know, we need to um, get out there and share what, uh, for example, for this pavilion in particular, share what Wat and Teremoto have done, make sure they get onto the right platforms and talk about it. Um, and then, you know, hopefully, in small ways, uh, hope that the right kind of institutions, you, you have to get government involved if you want larger change. Um, uh, and you, you know, it's just a two-way street. So you need the grassroots, you need the communities to, to start thinking about it and spreading the word, having more talks, workshops, whatever it might be. But you also need government to get involved too in terms of policymaking and uh, encouraging the communi communities and populations to, to make change, let's say. Uh, and those things, sometimes as much as you might want them to happen, take time. So... You know, we're always still continuing continuing to push these things forward. And I have to say that I know that this pavilion has definitely caught the eye of, of government. So hopefully 
um, or individuals within government. They think it's really interesting. So hopefully we can see this uh, continue further or you know, the, this dialogue to, to continue. I think also we are quite lucky in the UAE to, to see uh, very quick action taken by the government when something needs to be done. Yes. Um, if you think about it, 15 years ago, there was no idea of uh, implementing renewable energies to be installed mm -hmm. in, in buildings and, and have agreed where to connect. Um, so many things have changed very, very quickly compared to, let's say, Italy, where I'm from, and things take 2,000 years to happen. So definitely, we are in a privileged uh, position in the UAE, and, and hopefully this work is, is definitely going to inspire uh, legislation and policy, as you said, to make things happen. Uh, while what do you think, um, specifically with your firm, do you see clients coming to you asking for for a nature-based solution or, or you know, climate um, adaptation being embedded in, in, in buildings? Yes, uh, yes, definitely. I mean, uh, uh, we are a multidisciplinary office, not uh, by, uh, by coincidence, it is by belief, you know, because I believe that architecture, landscape, and sustainability are not three different uh, disciplines, but they are one discipline. You know, in the past, if you look back in history, uh, you know, there wasn't someone that is, was called so clearly identified as the architect himself. And, and one of the greatest exhibitions ever done about architecture, and what that was accompanied by a book, you know, Architecture Without Architects, uh, you know, where communities built architecture and you know they built uh, amazing housing or or uh, also community spaces not only their habitable space but their social space which uh, that are based on sustainable solutions the materials they used were from their uh, environment and you know they they learned how to build the wind tower, for example, to catch the wind and ventilate these courtyards. It wasn't an architect who came up with this genius idea. It was a community that came up with this, uh, with this idea. So I believe you know, that architecture can only be produced, proper architecture is by collapsing all the disciplines together and not saying, you know, not producing a box and then say, oh, I'll put landscaping around it this is not how it works you know, i believe they can only coexist and overlap uh, and this is how i i see uh, good architecture so the clients come to us with a similar vision and people are aware i think absolutely they are aware and and with covid they've become more and more aware you know how many people today during lockdown were saying oh i wish my window opened you know, it was like we live, they live in glass houses, not my case. I was probably very selective of what my house space was like. But, uh, you know, because there was so much emphasis on the office space and everyone spent their time in the office. So, you know, even all these big corporations would give you all these beautiful gimmicks in the office to play and spend time, etc., to attract you to be there. Then you really neglected your home or your house and it just became a place where you go to sleep and not really a place that is home 
or where you know you can also um, live. So in that sense, the people selected homes based on on different value system. But then when COVID hit, they got stuck at home and say, "Oh, I wish I had a balcony. You know, I wish my window open, I could get some fresh air. I wish I had this small garden." And today, when when people go looking for homes, they have these things in mind. They no longer can accept uh, developments offered on the market by developers, where I believe they are in 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 inhabitable environments. You know, inhabitable environments. You cannot have a house where you're, you don't get any natural or fresh ventilation and only live off air conditioning and, and uh, mechanical ventilation. It's not healthy. I don't believe this is a healthy place to live. Uh, you know, when, when people say, you know, I can no longer accept to live in this, then the market has to offer a good alternative. And as you rightly also mentioned with uh, Leila and you mentioned, you need government also to step in and set certain uh, guidelines to, uh, to, let's say, housing. Well, now, because you both are, uh, you know, very aware and, and into the, the sustainable way of living, uh, which, by the way, centuries ago was not being sustainable, was, you know, the normal way of living that we completely changed. But... The way you live, what is something that you do every day that you would um, recommend everyone to do just to start, you know, on our own, making a change and in the right direction? Um, stop buying water bottles. <laughs> Very good. I agree. <laughs> uh, I installed a water filter in it. So like have drinking water in my apartment. So uh, I don't, and I carry around water bottles with me everywhere. I mean, so if we can at least try to cut that out, that would be great. I also shopping, like when I do grocery shopping, I just buy what I need for the next couple of days. Most, I mean, again, I'm not, I don't have family. I don't have kids. So maybe that's, it's different, but you know, sometimes you do find there's a lot of excess and especially when I go to other families' houses and the food and like all of the, the waste that comes with all of that as well uh, is something to kind of consider. But and tote bags instead of plastic shopping grocery bags, get rid of the plastic. Just you know, little things that can help. Great. So you gave us three tips now. Wahel, are you <laughs> yeah, up to I, the challenge? <laughs> I, I totally agree with Leila about these, especially these ridiculous small bottles that have how much 100, 200 ml of water. I mean, these should be illegal i think you know asap if anyone's hearing me out there that can you know implement a change this should be illegal absolutely um, i think i think what is important is that we should as individuals stop to think of the i you know and and the the, the i me or i that's a problem i think and we should think of the we it's about the collective and what I do will impact others. The 17th International Architecture Exhibition, Biennale Architettura 2021, started on the 22nd of May and will end on the 21st of November 2021 with national anti-COVID-19 measures in place. You can find more information, including links to a virtual tour, in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Forward Talks by Gumbuk. 
I'm Tatiana Antonelli and this episode was produced by Shira Disei. You can find our previous episodes in podcast players or at goombook.com slash podcast. And you can connect with us on Instagram at goombook. That's G-O-U-M-B-O-O-K. Thank you and see you again soon.